Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Francisco L. Borges and the Melville Charitable Trust. This is where we live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Coming up, we get an update on sports betting in Connecticut. How are efforts to expand gaming in the state impacting an agreement with Connecticut's two tribes to open another casino in East Windsor? Connecticut Public Radio's Frankie Graziano will give us an update. That's later. We'll also check in on the latest surrounding efforts to save the historic Nathan Hale Hotel in Willimantic, as leaders there also try to spur economic development on its main street. First, we hear about the role of SROs in local schools. SRO stands for School Resource Officer or Police Officer, who's hired by school boards to help make schools safer for students and staff. But should school administrators get SROs involved in routine discipline issues? A new report by Connecticut Voices for Children finds that happens more times than not, and the practice is disproportionately affecting particular students. For more on that study, joining us via Skype is Kamara Stokes-Hudson. She's Associate Policy Fellow with Connecticut Voices for Children, also co-author of a study examining the impact of school resource officers on students. Kamara, welcome to our show. Hi, thank you so much for having me. So I described what an SRO is, but how many of them are there in Connecticut, considering how many uh, towns and cities, uh, local school districts we have? Um, So we actually don't know the total number of school resource officers that exist in the state. Um, We know that no more than around 24% of schools reported having school resource officers in the 2015-2016 school year, so now several years ago. We don't have a total count of the number of individual officers. Mm. That sounds like a problem, uh, not being able to find that data. Why is that? There's no uh, standard uh, for school districts to follow, even when it comes to reporting guidelines to the state? So there is no central requirement to report or a central place to report the presence of a school resource officer. So this, um, the State Department of Education does have a data database called EdSite. That website includes quite a bit of information on a school-based level. One of the things that it doesn't include is whether or not a school has a school resource officer present. So there currently is no central repository for where the presence of school resource officers are, with the exception of a federal data collection called the Civil Rights Data Collection, um, which collects data every two years, which is why the last data year we have for this study is 2015-2016. But that's the only school-level research we've been able to find or school-level data we've been able to find regarding the presence of school resource officers in the state. So when a local school board uh, enters into a contract with the local police department, it's the police department that uh, assigns uh, one of their officers or more than one to a particular school. And and what are they allowed to do when they're in school, Kamara? So the practices are quite variant in terms of what the expectations of school resource officers are. And to be perfectly honest, to a certain extent, we can't tell what the agreements are between a lot of the school districts and police departments. So by Connecticut state statute, school districts, boards, local boards of education and police departments that choose to have school resource officers have to have an MOU. 
The problem is the vast majority of those MOUs, which would outline memorandums of understanding, sorry, would outline the kind of rules of engagement with the roles and responsibility of that school resource officer are, things like that, um, are not publicly available or not easy to find. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's very hard for us as individual citizens or us at Connecticut Voices for Children at re- as researchers to be able to determine what the roles and responsibilities of the vast majority of SROs are in the state. What we do know from national research, though, is that the roles of SROs can vary, right? So oftentimes acting as school security, so doing external protection of the school, but also doing internal work, so things like teaching and mentoring, but also acting sometimes as a discipline or someone that deals with the disciplinary needs of students are all things that have been suggested as roles that school resource officers have across the country. Um, Yeah. So why did Connecticut Voices for Children look specifically at uh, the impact of SROs? What did you find, Kamara? Great. So I think we found four major things. Firstly, that on most measures of school safety, such as the use of weapons, drugs and alcohol, theft, property damage, um, the average numbers of incidences of such behavior didn't differ all that significantly between schools that did and did not have school resource officers. Um, Second, that academic performance as measured by the average number of students um, meeting or exceeding smarter balance benchmarks also didn't differ all that much in terms of the presence of SRO. What we do find is that the presence of a school resource officer may contribute to more students experiencing exclusionary discipline. In this study, we looked at expulsions, referrals to law enforcement, and arrests. Um, Students attending schools with school resource officers were a greater risk of discipline overall. But we know that the average arrest rate for Latino students at schools with a school resource officer was six times greater than the average arrest rate for Latino students in schools without a school resource officer. Um, And then finally, we found that schools with school resource officers discipline students more often for things that are potentially non-criminal. So when you look at schools with school resource officers, they tend to report higher levels of school policy violations, which are things like skipping class, insubordination, using profanity, dress code violations. Um, It's not clear from the available data, though, that we have um, whether SROs participated in the reporting of these policy violations. So on the via Skype again with us is Kamara Stokes-Hudson. Uh, she's with Connecticut Voices for Children, co-author of a study examining the impact of school resource officers on students. So uh, you reported uh, four different, uh, you know, uh, statements or what you found from the data, the limited data that you were able to find on school resource officers in Connecticut, Kamara. Uh, so let's just back up. So when we think about the number of incidents uh, versus uh, S- schools that have SROs versus those that do not, there you mentioned that there's really no correlation between if there's an existence of an SRO that there might be less incidents uh, than a school uh, that um, doesn't have any SRO in terms of discipline and other issues? Um, So in terms of the presence of certain types of things like weapons or certain types, so we looked at a range of incidences that occur in schools. So each year, schools report individual incidences of certain things. When we we looked at incidences of things that are potentially criminal, so weapons violations, drugs and alcohol violations, theft, property damage, things like that, the presence of an SRO didn't seem to really change anything, right? There wasn't 
there wasn't a strong relationship between the presence of an SRO and a higher or lower rate of those events happening. What we did find was in the instance of things that are potentially non-criminal, so what we refer to as school policy violations, um, we saw a strong relationship or a larger relationship between the presence of school resource officers and the high rates of higher rates of school policy violations that we were seeing in those schools. When we uh, hear that Latino students are six times more likely uh, to be arrested uh, when uh, they're involved uh, with uh, some kind of incident, what kind of incidents are leading to their arrests, Kamara? Were you able to tell? So we actually can't tell. Um, the data set that we have only acknowledges that an arrest occurred. Um, it also doesn't acknowledge any type of contact that could have happened with a student that didn't result in a formal arrest. Um, and so there are lots of things that happen before an arrest and interactions that happen before arrests um, that can have ma massive impacts on students. But this only really tells us if an arrest occurred, mm -hmm. not the reasons for it. Um, I'm curious um, if school resource officers uh, reviewed these findings in this study. What is their response in, uh, again, uh, seeing that Latino students uh, were disproportionately affected uh, by um, arrest rates uh, when SROs were involved in particular schools? Great. So we did ask for feedback um, from a school resource officer who we had been working with, who had come to a series of our presentations on the research prior to us presenting it. Um, we spent quite a bit of time in the buildup to releasing this report, doing something called data walks, which are like a series of community conversations about the research that we were doing so that we could get feedback from other people, um, from people who worked in education, who were in schools, but also school resource officers. Um, but so someone who we built a relationship through that process um, was able to review the paper. We also had representatives of juvenile justice um, advocacy also review the paper um, in terms, and so we basically had them review it in terms of factual accuracy if we were representing the research correctly, not necessarily to gain their direct opinions. Mm -hmm. So what do you want to see happen uh, after this, uh, you know, the study has concluded? What do you want to see policymakers, even local school boards consider, um, again, as we hear that the number of SROs have increased, especially after the Sandy Hook shootings? Yep, exactly. So. The first thing I really want to acknowledge, especially in the in the discussion surrounding Latino students, is that there isn't very much information we currently have on school resource officers in Connecticut. We think that this study is at best one piece of that story. But if those arrest rates are as high as they seem to be, we have a very serious problem on our hands that really requires a deep exploration um, because experiencing an arrest is extremely traumatizing for children and any of the people who are around them. It can push kids further and further away from educational opportunities, from job opportunities in the future. And so it's really important to understand why such disparate rates are occurring on Latino students. Um, for that reason, one of our first requests is that the Connecticut legislature should request a study on the presence of school resource officers that includes a review of student discipline by race, gender, and disability status. Because of the data availability and the information regarding SROs that's publicly available, we just don't have enough information to make conclusive statements about the presence of school resource officers in the state. But we realize that a lot of the research we do have, both nationally and locally, because there is a report from the ACLU in 2008, um, 
suggests that we really do need to understand the implications of the presence of school resource officers before we put them inside of our schools, before we create memorandums of understanding um, around their presence to really understand um, what the impact of them is. So the first request we have is that a study on SROs should be done that includes a review of student discipline by race and gender. So uh, The other request on school, uh, on the state as a whole is that Connecticut should require that questions about school resource officers are included in school climate surveys for any school district that has a school resource officer. So currently, school districts are required to provide their students with a school climate survey that asks them about a range of experiences inside of schools. We think that one of those experiences must be the presence of school resource officers. Student voice and understanding what each and every student feels about their school resource officer is a really, really important data point in terms of how we move forward with the presence of school resource officers in the state. So, Kamara, at this point, uh, we just don't know enough to find out whether uh, school administrators uh, may be uh, asking SROs within their schools to weigh in on routine discipline. The data is not there yet to be conclusive about that? Exactly. We just don't have enough data to be conclusive at this point about many of the claims that are made about school resource officers. I think what this report should do for people and how people should understand this report is as a piece of the story about school resource officers that suggests to us that there might be a problem and that we need to dig much deeper into it um, and have a very deep understanding of the presence of school resource officers that includes and centers the lives of, of students of families, of communities that have been impacted by relationships with the police, because those are often the kinds of stories that are left out of these discussions. But it's, this report really suggests to us that that is the next step, is a very in-depth analysis of the presence of school resource officer that is resource officers that is up to date, that uses all of the data that Connecticut has um, to be able to make an informed decision for all of us. Um, and for all of the children in Connecticut schools. Kamara Stokes-Hudson, again, is Associate Policy Fellow with Connecticut Voices for Children, also co-author of a study examining the impact of school resource officers on students. Uh, Kamara will be interested to see uh, how uh, policymakers follow up uh, on this study, but we appreciate your time explaining it to us. Thank you so much for having me. She joined us via Skype. From Connecticut Public Radio, this is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Up next, towns and cities are often looking for economic development opportunities. But what does that mean for historic structures in the path of redevelopment plans? We hear how municipal leaders and historic preservationists reached a compromise to save the Nathan Hale Hotel in Willimantic. You can join us, too. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. This is where we live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. What should preservationists and municipal leaders weigh when considering whether to save or demolish historic buildings? The town of Wyndham reached an agreement with preservationists to save the Nathan Hale Hotel in Willimantic. Now, to fill some of the backstory and explain why the state got involved, uh, joining us now in studio is uh, Susan Johnson. She's the Wyndham Democratic State Representative in the Connecticut General Assembly. Representative Johnson, welcome to our show. Thank you so much for inviting me to be here today. Also with us is Jane Montanaro, Executive Director of the Connecticut Trust for Historic Preservation. Welcome to our studio, Jane. 
Thank you. So, Representative Johnson, uh, tell us about, uh, I mentioned that the settlement was with the town of Wyndham, but we're talking about uh, Main Street and, and Willimantic. So describe that location uh, in the city of Willimantic for our listeners who may not be familiar with it. Sure. Our Main Street, our downtown Main Street, is very, very small. It's about a six or eight block area. And there is a large uh, part of Main Street that has been vacant for a number of years. Uh, first of all, the Nathan Hale uh, building uh, that was Eastern Connecticut State University dormitory, uh, that was vacated pretty much in uh, 1978. And uh, then we had also the, uh, the Hotel Hooker, uh, which uh, had been vacant, I think, for about 12 years or so. But in the meantime, it had been deteriorating before that. I was on the council in 1989 to 1992, and then again in 1999 to 2001. And one of the things that we were focused on was trying to make sure that our main street was getting developed. At the same time, we also had the YMCA building, and that also uh, became vacant. So we had a hole in the middle of our downtown Willimantic, and it really eroded access to businesses. It really created a problem in terms of our image, uh, having all these empty buildings uh, that were deteriorating, dilapidated, uh, didn't do very much for commerce. And I just have to God bless the, the businesses that stayed there uh, and conducted business uh, during that time because they uh, have been real troopers. And it's very difficult mm -hmm. to do when you have a real real hole in the middle mm. of your main street. So before it got to that condition, I, I believe, um, from my understanding, the Hooker Hotel was built first, then the Nathan Hale Hotel. But this was a time when things were really happening in Willimantic. Why was that, Representative Johnson? Well, certainly we had a we had a booming economy back in the days of the Industrial Revolution. We were Thread City. In fact, we have a bridge uh, erected uh, to the Thread City concept, uh, and uh, we have Frogs on Top of the Bridge, which mm -hmm. was uh, also part of a book that was written uh, called Legendary Connecticut. Uh, uh, Eastern Connecticut State University professor wrote the book, and that's how, and he then he went around and he got money to put the frogs on top of the spools. So we have a very interesting place, <laughs> and it's really devoted to history. We have wonderful museums and all kinds of things that uh, really are part part of our, our history and our heritage. Uh, but unfortunately, as a member of the council back in 89 to 92, I worked really hard to make sure that we had uh, code officials, housing code officials, go in there and try and make sure they, they uh, made sure our buildings were up to code. And unfortunately, those kinds of efforts didn't quite work out. Mm. And so uh, these were historic uh, buildings. Mm -hmm. They were listed on the National Register of Historic Places. And so when they were uh, allowed to get into the condition that they were, it's problematic with when a developer wants to come in, uh, what can be done, right? So can you talk about some of that? Oh, absolutely. So one of the things that we did, so uh, just going back a little bit, right after uh, the Eastern Connecticut State University, which was ECSE, uh, Eastern Connecticut State College at the time, uh, left the uh, Nathan Hale empty, uh, it, we also had the Hotel Hooker that was being addressed uh, with payments from the town through something called town assistance. So a lot of people who lived in the Hotel Hooker uh, were actually receiving town aid. 
And at the same time, again, I tried to get the building done and all that stuff. But uh, what happened is uh, we also, about the same time when they created historic districts, uh, we, in 1983, created a historic district in our downtown area, a federal historic district. Mm -hmm. So we have that. And then all of a sudden uh, came uh, these new tax issues, uh, say, fast forward to mm -hmm. today, uh, when they have these things called opportunity zones, historic district tax credits, all these things. Uh, and some of them look like they might be uh, in conflict. Sometimes they can be coordinated, and sometimes they may be in conflict. But what we did is... We had a private developer that was not interested in doing anything with getting historic tax credit money from the state of Connecticut, which is something that is also a very big sell in many, many communities. But my community is a distressed municipality. So when a, uh, a developer comes into a distressed municipality, the return on the dollar is not going to be the same as it would be in a, a municipality that... Uh, is booming and has lots of resources. Mm. So what we did is uh, we took a look at what was going on and the historic people who uh, they they have the best intentions in mind and they really do care about our history and so do I. <laughs> but in terms of how we proceed uh, has been very, very different. They have an opportunity to get uh, uh, people in there and have the state look at whether or not uh, what the developer is proposing or may do uh, will actually conflict with the goals of trying to creep, uh, create, uh, keep uh, historic buildings. So I want to bring Jane Montanaro into the discussion. Before we get there, though, what was the plan that the developer wanted to do that would have um, done something with both the Nathan Hale Hotel and the Hooker Hotel? What was the plan? Well, the plan would be to give, let him have full uh, decision-making on all those buildings and that there would be no interference from anyone. So uh, the Hooker, of course, is a wood-framed building and had uh, deteriorated even since uh, when I was on the council uh, because at that point in time, a couple of years later, it was completely empty because it was a... Um, a building that was dangerous for the people to live in. So they have something called the Relocation Assistance Program. Actually, I actually wrote the the ordinances for relocation assistance for the town when I was on the council. And uh, so the Relocation Assistance Program was utilized to move the people who were living in the Hotel Hooker out into other places because the foundation was crumbling. It's a wooden frame. And then after that, uh, somehow it got into state surplus ownership along with ECS, uh, the former dormitory, the Nathan Hale, and the YMCA building across the street. That's kind of what happened. Mm -hmm. uh, so the, t the state ended up owning all those buildings, and they were trying to sell them. And actually, just as a point of information, I was on the finance committee when the buildings were sold in 2014 mm -hmm. uh, to, the, uh, to, the, to the LLC mm -hmm. that was also uh, part of the Willimantic Waste Paper Company, uh, the DeVille family. So so they're the ones that had it, and they had been working. They had donated the, the YMCA building, and I just want to say the YMCA building looks exactly like uh, it used to look back in the day, and they had done a whole refurbishing there that was not necessarily part of anyone's concerns because of the horrible facade that was on there before. Uh, this is where we live. Uh, we're getting um, some context uh, to a situation in Willimantic where uh, two hotels uh, that were on the National uh, Register of Historic Places, also a part of Willimantic where uh, municipal leaders wanted to see economic development. 
And uh, this was a battle that happened for uh, a long time about what to do uh, with an area that is distressed. As Representative Susan Johnson is explaining to us here on Where We Live, she represents uh, the town of Wyndham. Uh, also in studio with me is Jane Montanaro, Executive Director of Connecticut Trust for Historic Preservation. So, Jane, uh, we've uh, gotten the context from Representative Johnson about uh, you know this idea that this, these properties had uh, been so dilapidated. They wanted to bring uh, business. Uh, to an area that was distressed, but there's also something to weigh, which is uh, the historic value of these buildings. And so tell us how you got involved, again, uh, as uh, Connecticut Trust for Historic Preservation. Yes. Um, the Connecticut Trust for Historic Preservation is the statewide nonprofit historic preservation organization, and we work with municipalities and individuals and nonprofit organizations and um, jointly with the community to resolve and protect historic resources in their communities. Um, the National Register listing by itself does not have any regulations. It's really an honorific listing. And in Willimantic, there was not a demolition delay ordinance or a local historic district or any other trigger besides the National Register nomination for local preservationists to speak up and try to protect these buildings. In Connecticut, we have a very special um, legislation, the Connecticut Environmental Protection Act, which protects historic structures in the same way that it protects um, quality air, water, and um, we're able to work with local um, constituents who have a, a concern about a property on the, the National Register, and we can bring in resources. We brought in an engineer and an architect, both toward the, the Hale building and the Hooker building, both in the middle of the winter when there was ice and, you know, they were at their worst condition possible, but we, we went through and we got a good look at the buildings. Um, our engineer is experienced in dealing with historic structures and has um, studied over a thousand historic structures, and her report on the, the Hale building was that that was very structurally sound. It's, you know, 1926 uh, concrete building, which coincidentally was was built with um, public money. It was raised, the public raised money to build that hotel when um, they had the, the, the big boom in, in the late 19th century, early 20th century. So we heard Representative Johnson mention uh, the historic people who came in and wanted to see these buildings saved. Um, given what the architect and others uh, said, that the the idea being that maybe there was a way to uh, keep the the Hale Hotel and try to find a way to uh, keep it into the plans of of economic development. If this developer was interested in building uh, housing there, yes. So. The beauty of a historic district is that you have a number of structures all together, you know, working together to create the streetscapes, the, the speaking with one another, the architecture, um, really defining a space. And once you start to erode that by letting one building go here, one building go there, I believe when the, the district was listed in 1982, there were over 60 structures existing, and we've lost quite a few of those since, since the 1980s. Um, so it's really important to try to keep that district intact. 
So uh, explain why uh, the state attorneys general got involved, attorneys, uh, the state AG's office got involved in this situation um, when we're thinking about trying to save historic places in our state. Yes, so the Connecticut Trust looks at the um, integrity of the buildings that the constituents are asking for protection on, and we also look at the level of local support for those buildings. Um, we felt that there was enough of a, an outcry in the community to bring this to the Attorney General's attention. There was a petition of over 750 names on it. A lot of those were gathered during a Shop Small Saturday, so I think that speaks to the draw that that community has as a commercial district, bringing people from outside Willimantic to come and shop and, and eat and enjoy downtown Willimantic. So we were able to work with the State Historic Preservation Office and present a case to the Historic Preservation Council, and that council did do their monthly meeting in Willimantic so that everyone in Willimantic who would like to speak on behalf of the, the structures or on behalf of the developer and the new development were given an opportunity to speak. So the um, council listened to testimony for over three hours and then voted to um, refer the, the matter to the attorney general. Um, really the, the whole point of having this um, Connecticut Environmental Protection Act mm -hmm. is for a situation like this where parties were not coming together to have a conversation and bringing the attorney general in to try to, to find mutual ground in a, in a settlement that would be um, productive for everyone was really a, a benefit for this legislation. And so tell us what the settlement is. So the settlement is between the state of Connecticut State Historic Preservation Office and the developer. Um, they are allowed to demolish the Hooker Hotel, which was a wood frame building that had the most deterioration but they are to um, reuse the Hook the Hale Hotel, which is the concrete larger structure. They are not using any federal or state money, so there are no restrictions. Um, typically in historic preservation pro projects, we refer to the Secretary of the Interior Standards, which are guidelines that ensure that the most historic fabric and treatments are used. So in this case, with federal money, there aren't any other overlays to ensure that those um, standards are met. And it even says in the, in the settlement that it doesn't have to be to Secretary of the Interior Standards. So that's a little bit of a low bar for us, but we'll take a victory that the building will still be standing. <laughs> Representative Johnson, is this a good compromise? I'd say so, yes. And I'm very, very pleased that everybody was able to come together with the Attorney General and do another analysis, taking into consideration everybody's concerns. Of course, somebody, who, uh, someone who has been involved um, uh, since the 1980s, trying to make sure, because I was on the Zoning Board of Appeals before that, uh, trying to make sure we do something with our Main Street and having s numerous studies done over and over saying, get to do something with the middle of Main Street. Uh, this has been something that I've been working on for many, many, many years, as is uh, many of the other people in our town. And so I am very, very pleased with the result and that we're going to have a developer who is very pleased to work with us. I might want to add one, uh, a couple other things. One is we have zoning rules that require that we keep a historic look to our downtown. Even if the uh, building is not exactly the, the exact same materials and everything, we had a building called the Capitol Theater building that uh, was being redone back in the 1980s. And uh, three quarters of it crumbled. 
And you take a look at it today, you wouldn't know that it was all rebuilt. And I think that uh, the same thing with the YMCA buildings that I was mentioning before. I have pictures of the old YMCA building in my house. And I took a look at how they did that over. And uh, again, we have facades that are all duplicated and the pictures look just like what we have on Main Street now. So I think a lot of this stuff can be uh, done over and can be done to make, make it look just like uh, it did look when it was built originally. And it wasn't that long ago. If you look at the 1920s, it's really not. I mean, I guess I'm showing my age now. but uh. Representative Johnson, uh, you know, some of our listeners might be wondering why we're taking such a deep dive into uh, this uh, situation in Willimantic. But there are uh, ramifications uh, for uh, different communities around the state. You and a colleague have proposed legislation that would help uh, towns uh, and cities like Willimantic that have uh, distressed areas uh, try to figure out a way where historic preservation is not something that will keep developers from coming in. Can you talk a little bit about the bill? Absolutely, yeah. So uh, I have to say we, we had proposed something that was a little more far-reaching and after working and listening to the people from the Historic Preservation uh, Council and uh, talking to people, we realized that really what the problem here was is that uh, the, 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 the intervention of the historic preservationists in distressed municipalities uh, that are small and have a real difficult time expanding their tax base, uh, it, it might be getting in the way, particularly when you look at the tax credit part. Tax credit part is they give the same tax credit money to people in, uh, say, towns like Greenwich that they would in a distressed municipality when the return on the investment is uh, much, much lower in a distressed municipality than it would be in a place like Greenwich. So, so that right away, there is an inequity. And I, as a state representative for Wyndham, a distressed municipality, I've been looking at inequities in distressed municipalities for my last 11 years. And I am very, very uh, charged up about that. So <laughs> just say. <laughs> but Jane Montanaro, again, executive director of Connecticut Trust for Historic Preservation, these, legisl these, these bills are problematic from the historic uh, preservation side. Yes, indeed. Um, and explain why. Well, actually, I'd like to... Um, address Representative Johnson's point that the uh, tax credits, when you look at the list of the tax credits that the, that Connecticut issues and the feds issue in Connecticut, a large majority of them, do, they do go to distressed municipalities naturally, Bridgeport, Hartford, um, New Haven. Um, there's very few that come up in Greenwich or other communities like that. Um, and the State Historic Preservation Office has also um, talked about setting policy that will um, earmark a certain amount of the tax credit, which is capped at $31.4 million. They're looking at a policy that would earmark about $12 million of that specifically for distressed municipalities. I'm so well, can we talk, though, about the, this bill and why historic preservationists are upset about uh, this idea of trying to uh, get around uh, when places are deemed historic but being able to um, you know, push through development? Sure. So the bill um, actually would have impacted our work in Willimantic. So it was trying to carve out some uh, segments of the population that would, where historic properties would fall underneath the Connecticut Environmental Protection Act. And for historic preservation reasons, we thought that was very dangerous because, um, as you saw in Willimantic, you know, the, the process played out. We were allowed to to bring in the attorney general, and the result you know, for the historic, um, for saving historic buildings really wasn't a big win, but it was 
something. <laughs> there was a compromise made. So I don't think that the process needs to be changed. I think that it actually needs to be strengthened because um, when you have these pressures of the Opportunity Zone funding coming into distressed municipalities and municipalities that are um, definitely very eager to have that investment and looking for their savior to come in and, and help right the communities, this puts a lot of stress on the the, the very the 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 historic assets that we have in these communities that are already, you know, struggling to survive, but so important to to maintaining our cities and our in our streetscapes and our in our communities and the people that live and work in those communities feel so passionate about keeping a piece of their heritage mm -hmm. and it can all work together. It can um, new construction and historic preservation and economic development. We have models that show that these are not mutually exclusive, exclusive. They can all work together. Uh, Representative Johnson, we just have a couple of minutes left. Can you tell us the status of those bills and also lessons for other municipalities and residents who are listening right now? Sure, and I just wanted to focus on one part of the bill that uh, addresses the fact that it's an opportunity zone. Just because you have a, a distressed municipality and you have historic districts, not all the historic districts are in opportunity zones. So I just want to make that clear. So the focus of the bill was to address historic districts with, that are also in opportunity zones in distressed municipalities. And it ended up being mm -hmm. three or four municipalities that actually would have yeah. been impacted by that. Uh, as far as the bills that we were talking about? Y yes, yeah, the, the bill that we're talking about now. So now we are looking at trying to make sure we work with the historic preservation uh, folks and that we do the uh, historic tax credits so that they're going to be focused a little bit more uh, heavily on the, uh, on the different municipalities that are distressed and maybe uh, help with that. And also, I'm hoping to work uh, with everybody uh, to try and make sure that we don't run into the same problem we ran into with the hotel hooker, that we get uh, maybe some help from the historic councils uh, to try and make sure that we have, if we have older buildings in these municipalities, that we help out the owners before these things fall into disrepair, before they're abandoned. Having these abandoned buildings in neighborhoods where little children are walking back and forth to school, uh, all these kinds of things, uh, people people living next door to abandoned buildings or having uh, having uh, you know a business next door to abandoned buildings, these are all things that people suffer with in their neighborhoods. They're living with it. And so we need to try and be sensitive to that as well and try and make sure that we work on those places in our distressed municipalities. I'm very looking forward to doing that. Well, I want to thank you for coming in to tell us about this compromise again reached to save the Nathan, Hel Nathan Hale Hotel uh, in Willimantic. Representative uh, Susan Johnson again, who represents Wyndham. Thanks so much for coming in today. Thank you so much for having me. Also, Jane Montanaro, Executive Director of the Connecticut Trust for Historic Preservation. Uh, Jane, thank you for your thank time. Thank you so much. This is Where We Live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. After the break, we're going to get a quick update on sports betting. From Connecticut Public Radio's Frankie Graziano. You can join us too, 860-275-7266, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. This is where we live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalbathanchel. Coming up tomorrow, as technology advances and the workforce changes, what's the value of a liberal arts degree? On the next Where We Live, we're going to hear more about how high-tech giant Infosys has teamed up with 
Trinity College to find some new hires. And we want to hear from you, too, that conversation tomorrow. Also, uh, this reminder, Where We Live is coming to a coffee break near you. We're going to host our, continue our coffee break series, this time in Waterbury at the John Bale Book Company and Cafe. That's um, Tuesday, May 21st. You can go to Where We Live's Facebook page for more information. And now we're going to get an update on sports betting, something that Connecticut Public Radio's reporter Frankie Graziano has really uh, been deep into. And we're also curious about the future of that third casino in East Windsor, which we've talked about several times here on Where We Live. Frankie, welcome back to the show. Good morning, Lucy. So tell us, what's happening uh, with, first, uh, the East Windsor Casino? You were doing some reporting, asking Governor Lamont uh, last week about the status of that East Windsor Casino. Gaming issues are so complicated. Everything seems to be rolled up in one because of these negotiations that the tribes and, and the governor are having. I can get to the casino in a little bit, but basically what happened was there's all these gaming uh, bills that are on the table, and there was this conference in Hartford, and Lamont spoke to, like, a gaggle of reporters, and he had said he had said one thing, right? He had a scrum. He said one thing about sports betting, but he left out one big detail yeah. that he had essentially diagnosed that nothing was going to happen this session with sports betting. So after he had spoke, he was confronted by reporters, and then he eventually comes back after this strategy session he kind of had uh, with a, a gaming CEO that was there um, behind a partition at the conference. He comes back and says that sports betting likely won't happen this session, and he says that he wants all these gaming bills to be resolved under one global solution. I'd love to make a deal with Rodney. I'd love to make a deal with um, Mohegan and uh, MGM in a way that um, I honor my contact with Rodney and uh, the tribes. It includes Internet. It includes sports. But I'm not going to do it if we don't have a global solution. We heard Governor Lamont uh, reference Rodney. That's Mashantucket Pequot CEO Rodney Butler. So tell us why the tribes are tied into this idea of whether sports betting will be in Connecticut. Yeah, and, and you heard uh, Butler was also at that thing, and he says that basically um, the deal that they have with the states, they have some compacts with the state. They say that it's working for them and that um, – Essentially, if you look at these compacts, that's what the state agreement is with the tribes. The tribes get uh, give the states 25% of all revenue that they get from slot machines. Um, and Butler says, hey, that deal seems to work for us. And if anything happens that's new with gaming, uh, the state would basically have to amend their compacts with the tribe. So Rodney Butler says basically that the deal works for them. The current deal is a great deal. I mean, the you know, it's contributed $8 billion. to the, We have a great partnership, right? And so it's how do we enhance that in a way that benefits everyone, and we'll continue to work towards that. And whether it's this session, special session, next session, you know, it is what it is, but it's going to take time to, to figure it out. I'm not sure that that answers your question, Lucy, but uh, but it's, it shows you some of the complexities that are with these deals and that we need to have the governor having these conversations with the tribes. So uh, sports betting, uh, after the reporters press Governor Lamont, he's saying that that's not going to happen this legislative session. Was that a surprise at that point? A surprise because he hadn't said it yet. I guess he had told a, another reporter, and that's kind of what led to, hey, maybe the governor's not being uh, fully truthful or at least isn't really uh, illuminating everybody as to what's happening in these negotiations. But sports betting likely won't happen, and there may be a special session. But either way, it seems that because of all these things are being rolled into one, it shows you that here in Connecticut we're having trouble getting in on some of these 
these issues related to sports betting, which is something that should be revenue that the state mm -hmm. should be taking in relatively soon. You've been doing a lot of reporting on uh, this idea of sports betting in Connecticut, uh, surrounding states uh, doing it. Uh, how much money does Connecticut now stand to lose if sports betting doesn't come here, Frankie? When sports betting was enacted in, in May of 2018, there was a Supreme Court ruling that struck down uh, this agreement that basically says that you can't have sports betting outside of Nevada. Seven states, including Rhode Island, since then have jumped in on sports betting. Everybody thought that Connecticut, at least like uh, industry, I shouldn't say everybody, but industry kind of people, uh, thought that Connecticut would be among the first wave. But there was always that caveat that the unique tribal involvement could change things. And now we know to this extent that there's been two legislative sessions without sports betting, um, that there certainly is a big involvement. Joe Varenja, who's a lawmaker out of, the, out of uh, West Hartford, who has been involved in this, he's been exploring the sports betting market since the beginning, says that the state could make $30 million by year three of implementation. That's in a fully mature market, though, from what I understand. So that includes mobile betting, which is supposed to be this, this great thing that people have because you can bet from your phone, right? You can make these bets, and it's supposed to give you better access. Um, instead of waiting if, yeah. in line, but then <laughs> it's there's... great if you don't have an addiction to gambling, Frankie. <laughs> and you know, we covered that in a series that we recently did on sports betting, and 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 folks can learn more about that at at, at wnpr.org. But Lucy, you're right; that could lead to I've understand like uh, maybe two two times more of people having issues with with gambling addiction mm -hmm. in the state. So I started off uh, wondering about the status of that third casino in East Windsor. It had been uh, delayed because they were waiting for a decision from the U.S. Department of Interior if the state could even proceed with uh, this agreement between the two tribes because it's off casino land. It was a thought originally, Lucy, that it was going to be a foregone conclusion that that thing would go down within like 45 days. It took a year and a half for them to get that approval. So that's one major Hurdle, But now what I'm hearing is that there's like a second hang up. Um, and that comes from Mash and Tucket CEO, CEO Rodney Butler that we talked to Wednesday. He said that they're still trying to secure funding to build that $300 million casino. That's not a foregone conclusion either, because if you're looking at revenue estimates that the state gets from sports betting, that's one thing that tells us that the tribes are making less money on slots because Excuse me, I said sports betting, but that tells us that the tribes are making less money on slots, and therefore the state is too because they're not getting that re revenue from the uh, compacts. So that's one thing. But I've also heard from a source that the Mash and Tucket Pequot tribe, in particular, has a debt to uh, re debt to revenue ratio that's like three times more of where it should be. So that's that tells you that things aren't a foregone conclusion on that front. Um, in terms of, of funding being secured for that proposal in East Windsor, that's something that a lot of people in that area are holding on to because it's supposed to bring jobs, it's supposed to bring additional revenue in there. But uh, one thing I have heard to the positive is that some homes have been cleared um, alongside Route 5 in East Windsor near the proposed site. And I've also heard from tribal representatives that once they do break ground, it should take about 18 months to build. So we'll see. Meanwhile, MGM is looking at this situation because they have that new casino in Springfield. They don't want that direct competition, which has been the, the problem all along with them trying to interfere with what the tribes are hoping to do with the state of Connecticut. There is such a rivalry between MGM and, and the tribes, and, and I guess now the state of Connecticut is enveloped into it because MGM's wanted to get in on commercial business with the state of Connecticut for almost two decades now. So the state of Connecticut basically makes this joint venture with the um, Mash and Tucket Pequot and the Mohegan tribes, the tribes that run the Mohegan Sun and, and Foxwoods Casino, to get this casino in East Windsor. 
And as you said, they're not happy about that because they want to build a commercial casino. They're saying that's off tribal land, so it's a commercial seal, uh, casino. And they're also saying that it's not an open bidding process. So now there's a potential for a legal challenge, a lawsuit. And that's something that Governor Lamont and the state of Connecticut don't want. Uh, before we wrap, uh, Frankie Graziano again, Connecticut Public Radio reporter, uh, you mentioned special session uh, might be happening. Uh, tell us uh, what you know about uh, when that will be scheduled and exactly what they'll be looking at during that special session. I don't know much about the special session, Lucy. i got to be honest with you because as we're seeing from uh, that whole Lamont fumble last week, I don't think a lot of people know what's happening with these negotiations. The lawmaker I talked to, Varenja, as I talked to, uh, talked about earlier, he said he didn't even know about uh, the diagnosis from Lamont about gaming bills or a special session until uh, our news came out there. So it seems like if there is a special session, it would take place after June 6th, which is when the Connecticut General Assembly closes. Um, like I said, he's down for the guy I was talking to, uh, Varenja, he's down for comprehensive look at gaming and the Connecticut General Assembly going to a potential special session shows you that that could happen. But he did express frustration that there's no deal yet on sports mm -hmm. betting. Well, Frankie Graziano, thank you uh, for that update. Again, this is a story that continues uh, to evolve, but we thank you for coming in to tell us what you know about the latest uh, surrounding sports betting as well as uh, that third casino uh, in uh, East Windsor. Thanks so much, Frankie. Thank you, Lucy. Today's show produced by Scott Breedy. Uh, thanks to Katie Tularski, who was on our, our board today, and Lydia Brown on phones. Again, uh, we're going to be at uh, in Waterbury for our one of our uh, last uh, coffee breaks of this season. So you can go to Where We Live's Facebook page for more. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Thanks for listening.